Shemai Achroiso. Hello and welcome to the New York Welsh podcast. That is the podcast that celebrates Welsh success stories in New York, while hopefully inspiring the creation of some new ones. I am Richard. And I am Gideon. Our guest today is Dr. Danny Taylor, Professor Emeritus of Literacy Studies at Hofstra University. Denny is credited with giving rise to family literacy, which is a concept UNESCO uses today as an organizing principle all over the world, from China to the Congo, as well as in every member state in the UN. She's the founder of the Family Literacy Global Peace Project and has participated in a number of UN-sponsored initiatives in relation to her work. Denny is also an author of 19 books, fiction and non-fiction. She is a co-founder of Garn Press, a publishing house with a focus on social conscience that she created with her son, Ben. In 2004, she was elected member of the International Reading Association's Reading Hall of Fame and has been nominated for a number of prestigious awards, including a Pulitzer Prize in 1997 and most recently, the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize. We recorded this interview from Danny's apartment in the Upper West Side. We had a stimulating discussion about her work in family literacy and her involvement with the UN. We talked with her about some of the core issues facing society today in education, the rise of technology in our everyday lives and access to information. We also talked about two of her books in particular, Split Second Solution, which is a dystopian tale set here in New York City, uh, which touches on a number of very topical issues such as the application of artificial intelligence and its potential impact on privacy and civil liberty. We also talked about Rosie's Umbrella, a story set in modern-day Boston about a girl who conducts research into her family's history in a mining community in Wales. The stories in the book are based on Denny and her mother's own experiences and provide substantial insight into the way of life in the Welsh mining towns of the early 20th century. It's by far one of the most engaging, provocative, and I think important episodes we've recorded to date. Please enjoy our conversation with Dr. Denny Taylor. Denny, maybe you can tell us about your first encounter with the New York Welsh and how you came across it, because I understand it wasn't, it wasn't through Twitter, um, which is how we no. find most of our guests. I've been yeah, 50 much- years in this country, and I, I didn't know anything about the fact that there were people meeting up. Um, and I think that the New York Welsh goes back quite a way, especially through the church here. Yes. I had no idea, and I was walking... I have three dogs, two Jack Russells, so I was walking, I think I was walking trip, because I usually walk him fast, saw the the Welsh flag in uh, Riverside in the park there, and uh, a lot of people sitting around having a picnic, like the, <laughs> the way we used to when I was a child. Uh, we used to go to ross on Wye, uh, all my father's family, we'd get in a a bus and we'd all go off and uh, have a picnic and there they were they were having a Ross on Y picnic and so I there's no dogs in that field so I brought um, him up Trippy and then went took my Jack Russells and they're still there and they're eating away and having a good time and so um, I came up says I'm pretty phobic about meeting new people and so I really had to talk to myself that I could do this. So I went down and um, said, you know, what's going on? That's the Welsh flag. And they said, we're the New York Welsh. And I said, oh, I'm Welsh. And and one man said, what's your village? <laughs> 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 Customary introduction. 
So I said, well, Kandararu, my my grandmother's, my nana's village, and my father comes from the Vartic, and Plenavon is the town that connects those two places in South Wales, and uh, Brimore uh, is the other side of Kandararu. And so I guess I passed or something. And uh, so I stayed a little while and chatted to people. And that's, so that's the beginning, really. And I've actually gone to the... Uh, Welsh services at the church. Which is very um, cl- very close to here, right? Right. And I, had, I hadn't noticed how close it was, but we passed it on the way here. Right. I was like, hold on, that's the Welsh church. That's right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm living here. I had absolutely no idea that the Welsh church... I went to the Welsh church last month. I don't usually, I'll be honest, but I had a Sunday morning free and I thought, why not? It was the Camanvagani. And I was there, they had the service, there's, you know, tea and biscuits afterwards and Welsh cakes. I stayed probably for about three hours total. And when I walked out onto the street, it was like it was like coming out to the cinema and realising yes. it's still daytime. I was right. like, oh, that's right, I'm in Manhattan. It's I like felt like I was at home Dyke for a bit. It's like being in and find and then, you know, leaving that, that magical space and ending up out in regular old, well, in this case, New York. Yeah. When I was a child, most of my time uh, was spent in England. Um... My father went down the mines when he was 14. My, both my grandfathers were coal, were coal miners. Uh, my one grandfather uh, was on the mine face until he was 70. Um, and it, that's my maternal grandfather. Uh, and they lived uh, in Ganareru. And um, my father could have stayed... They were offered the opportunity to stay down the mines or to um, join up and go during the Second World War. And he joined the one of the engineering divisions. He did not want to fight, but he wanted to participate. When After the war, when he came back, um, he didn't want to go back down the mines. And like so many other uh, mining families... Uh, decided to go to to, uh, England um, and ended up in Birmingham working uh, in Dunlops, uh, working the furnaces. So it's one heavy duty job to another. Mm. So I was born in Birmingham um, and I was back in Wales uh, when I was... um, I, I don't know exactly... But 10 days, it might have been sooner. Uh, my mother immediately took me to to Wales. And um, um, I spent all my summers in Wales, in Christmases, my first Christmases. And um, every summer until I was 16, 17. And, and as a result, was your was your affinity always more to Wales than as a result to England? Or was it a bit of... Oh, my parents are Welsh. Yeah. They started a Welsh society in Ashford, and I've got photographs. So I, I could probably find them. Um, they, they started the Welsh Society, and um, they were never English. I'm sorry to all the English who might be listening, but my, you know, and my, I'm at the end of my mother's life. She said I should never have left Wales. Hmm. But Welsh mining families had no choice. Hmm. There was no work. People were hungry. Uh, they stopped paying any money, so that grown sons could live at home and there was the the policy of transference mm-hmm. in uh, Westminster 
And so uh, there was a very concerted effort in Westminster to uh, um, encourage <laughs> Welsh families to immigrate, migrate. And the big problem with this is that the, this uh, diaspora, I think there's probably more recognition now, but for there, there isn't that sense of this diaspora being mm. something that is central to Welsh um, history. It's a number of people who've read Rosie's Umbrella and said, I never knew that this was going on. I never mm. knew. This whole idea of diaspora goes right th- th- through all of my um, research. And the other thing that I think is really, um, I think, fascinating in in retrospect is that I remember standing with um, when there was a, a mine, you know, the, there were no explosions that I remember, but roof, the roof of the mine collapsing on, on the miners. I have memories of those kinds of events and all the women outside waiting to see, you know. Um, well, so that leads me on to the research that would have gone into uh, Rosie's Umbrella and particularly on Sarah's stories. How much of that is based on stuff that you knew and were aware of growing up and how much of it is? Yeah, I lived it. It's really my, it's my experience as a child uh, and my mother's experience. Um, Ganareru, uh, they raised the village, they they bulldozed it. Some of it, they, there was a talk that they were going to rebuild because they were the oldest mining cottages in Wales and they <laughs> they just wiped them out. And So I wanted to try and maintain um, that part of my mother's um, heritage, I suppose, or her identity. You know, it was it was very hard for her. And so the three, there were four stories, I think, in, in Rosie. So my grand, grandfather's bath um, and uh, the story of, of actually of Rosie's umbrella. Uh, all of those stories are actually uh, real stories. And... So my grandfather's bath is me actually going downstairs uh, when my grandfather got home from the mines and sitting with him and watching him have a bath until um, he realised that I was looking at his anatomy when I was about three or four years of age and he told my mother I had to stay upstairs until he had um, had his bath. But I used to watch him, you know, he would be... um, his, His trousers would be so caked and he was climbed, um, the last part often he had to be on hands and knees crawling underground and his so his pants you know you could he could take them off his trousers and stand them up they were they were just caked in in um coal dust and water almost like baked and i used to watch him um and i can i can see him having his bath right now washing his top half before he got into the bath. And so I, I wrote that story up and we and I changed it and added the other child um, when I was working on the actual book. But the writing of the story and getting all the names of all of the, of, um, the different parts of uh, what he needed when he was underground, all the tools he was using... Um, all of that came from conversations with my mother and you know this whole 
remembering. I mean, they, my nana cooked on an open fire. Um, and so remembering how all of that was, it was really critical. I, I felt it was critical that my mother had a chance to uh, remember all that. Well, that's one of the themes of the book, isn't it? Remembering. Right. And then the other story, of course, that is absolutely central to the book, again, is is authentic, is um, the fact that up in the hills behind the house, the, the row of mining houses, um, they're, they're, I think they were really air shafts. Um, there had at some point been a full mine, you know, with the wheel and all that stuff up there in the 19th century. But there were um, shafts that were probably 12 feet across and they had old boards across them uh, that were, um, they were just disintegrating. And my mother used to throw stones down and you count and wait to hear the plunk Mm. at the bottom. It's really deep sound. So we used to, you know, she used to throw stones at it and she'd say to me, this is a a tragedy waiting to happen. Mm. Uh, But I played in the hills and with the local children, that whole story is actually quite uh, authentic in that we all uh, put our heads over the edge of the shaft and dropped. And this is when I'm seven and eight years of age, you know. All of the... Um, the stories that uh, she tells, Sarah tells of her childhood um, are stories that the way, the, the kinds of games they played. My mother actually filled up a notebook for me uh, from her childhood. And so all of that is authentic too. And so is this <coughs> diaspora, you know, that the, the, this child in Boston knows nothing Mm. about any of this and uh, the way that she finds out about it is really the piece we won't mm. so I read Roses and Bread after reading it I spoke to my mother uh, grew up in Swansea now I don't think any of my grandfather's immediate family worked in the mines I think they mostly worked in the town and around the docks and on the boats um, but there was a pit nearby Minith Newith I think it's called probably means the slag heap and it was a pit. It was a proper pit with the with the lift yeah. that goes down and uh, closed in the 50s. But there it was. There was this open pit with boards across it. My mother remembers playing around it. So <laughs> it was a really nice story about that, um, that mine. There was uh, a bad explosion um, and many people died. But you know how the children would work down the mine? So there was, yeah. the list is like Daniel Jones, 12, mm-hmm. another name, 14, yeah. 17... And, um, Could have been my dad, you know, he mm. went down at 14. And so the miners, uh, they, d- they dug a chapel underground, hewn out of the oh, rock, really? painted the walls white, put some benches in there, and every Monday morning they'd do a little service uh, and ask for protection, and apparently there was never another explosion. That's a lovely story. Wow. You should write this. And then embed it in a bigger novel. It's not my story. Although you know, my, my mother, who my mother's an artist, and she did make um, a sculptural piece about it. So yeah. that story's been told. My father used to. He he was in a deep mine, and he said that um, he would get nosebleeds every time he went down because they dropped so quickly that their feet literally left the bottom of the uh, the cage, 
and uh, he would get nosebleeds. And he and his money from whatever it was went to pay uh, the rent because my uh, paternal grandfather he literally dropped it dead down the mines when he was uh, fifty. And the the um, doctor for the, was was through the mines, and so I've I have on audio um, one of my mother's cousins, Tommy, um, who was in his eighties, and we we uh, interviewed him. I wrote a piece that's in anthropology and education about him, um, and um, he talked about the miners that he knew who um, the doctor just signs off that it's something that has nothing to do with the mines when uh, everyone knew that it was, and especially with, with black lung and new mononosis, I can't say the word. But, and I can, that's something that's all of the men spat all the time. Mm. Um, and I, I remember my great uncle coming and to see his sister, my my nan, and he would not be able to talk for about fifteen minutes. He'd just sit on um, a straight back chair, and he'd just be wheezing and wheezing until he got to the state that he could he could talk. One of the things I loved about it was the social history, not just the specific family, and that system of how the collieries owned the homes. They also owned the co-op shops where they... Oh, yeah. And they'd sell you the coal back, the coal that you just dug. Oh, yes. I, it, it blew my mind. Yes. And, of course, they all... Everyone, all of the families cooked on an open fire. So uh, we used to get... I think it was half a tonne. And the backyard, there was a huge... Um, coal shed and my my grandfather would have to break up the coal and put it into the to, to the um to the coal shed and um we paid for milk bread etc at the co-op um with um plastic they weren't plastic there would have been something else tokens uh and i don't actually know how those tokens how my nan got those tokens, but I do know that we took tokens and we got we got our food. And but but the whole idea of Rosie was this idea of um, putting together a story about um, a diaspora that that is not recognised. And the child, I think, going falling down the the mine shaft um, is uh, indicative or it's symbolic of what happened to the miners mm. and children. I mean, I, I remember Abavan and mm. um, so, it, but the ending is okay. I mean, the, the people endure mm. and... Um, Since we're talking about, uh, you know, the lives of families and, and communities and uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about all, you know, all the work that you've done in that space and uh, maybe we can uh, talk about as well family literacy as a even in its origins and how you kind of helped identify that and through your work i started uh, teaching in in uh, personal green in uh, 1968 in a school um that had actually been condemned 30 years earlier that was the story um and i had 41 five, six, and seven-year-olds. Uh, and the most I had was 43. 
children and I was just 21. <laughs> what do you think, one in a single class? Yeah, that was my class. 43 children in one. I just yes. that in for a second. Yeah. Wow. These are, and the, the kids were, um, you know, their families were struggling. They were uh, working class, lower working class. Some of them, their uh, families uh, worked in the street markets on the barrows and uh, their families were facing huge hardships. Many of them had fathers who um, were um, in uh, prison uh, but the families were these large um, London families that probably went back many, many generations. And um, I no aid. You know, these days mm. <laughs> there's an aid in yeah. every classroom. And I had um, half an hour off once a week when the music teacher came in. Um, so what I did was I invited... Uh, parents in or aunts in or an uncle in anybody um, and so there were always uh, I was I always had um, after school they would come in and and I would talk to them about reading to their children and um, so I worked closely with the families so it was quite an interesting beginning to uh, teaching and um we d- I had 30, I think it was 30, I, I want to say 33 pounds, which is an odd number. It might have been 36, but I had 30-something pounds um, a year for supplies. And I spent all that money on books. I just decided that we need a, a, a library. There wasn't a library in the school. And so I started a class library. And um, it was the height of the um, progressive movement in in the UK. Um, and kids had a lot of responsibility for their own learning. And they were fabulous. And I, I really enjoyed working with them. And um, we, I was married and we um, ended up, um, David, my uh, husband, took a position with um, scientific design in New York. We couldn't come to the States to, to work because he didn't have a green card. They sent us to New Zealand and so we travelled all around the world and I I worked in schools in New Zealand. Uh, we ended up in Spain. I ran a school in my apartment for uh, American kids um, who um, their fathers were working as engineers and there was no school in, in it was Portiano. Um, so... I kept. I was teaching the whole time, and then came back and did a master's at Rutgers, and it was an extraordinary shock uh, because everything was skill and drill, and um, looking for what's wrong with kids, and um, very much workbook based. And uh, I didn't fit in. Mm. I used to say, kids don't take their families off with their coats when they come into the classroom. And so I did my master's there, um, got permission to do uh, what was essentially an ethnographic study. It did have, and I used non-parametric stat. I refused to use parametric stat, uh, but had to give an argument for why I wasn't going to use it. And got through that master's and uh, went to TC. And um, when I arrived for the interview, I had my questions um, and I it, the program uh, was um, then multidisciplinary, but I would say it was transdisciplinary. 
so it was uh, psychology, sociology, um, education. Uh, I've since added linguistics and a few, and also six or seven years of trauma stuff. But um, the the person that interviewed me said I was the only one that he'd ever interviewed that asked all the questions. But I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to focus on children, their families, and reading. Literacy, we don't, I don't think we appreciate this, and it, and it probably isn't that important, but for most of the 20th century, academics talked about reading, everything was about reading. No one talked about writing. Hmm. And then a guy called Don Graves came along and did this writing study, and which was right at the point I was doing my dissertation. And so literacy became, was a new t- new concept, and... I said I wanted to study family literacy. And Hervé Varenne, who's a French anthropologist who is my mentor, said, well, if you want to use that term, you've got to be able to to defend it, support it, define it, come up with it, conceptualise mm. it. And that's really what my dissertation was. The term didn't really exist before your research. No, no. Um, but the, there were a number of people who were doing work with families at that point, and the field of family literacy um, was, I think, founded by a number of researching researchers, including myself, who were doing really interesting work. And my my dissertation was with um, white middle class families because I had very small children. And so I looked around me for families that I could work with. And so I and I focused on children who were successfully learning to read, whereas the the field has always focused on why kids are not reading rather than why they are reading. Um so that study it's it's still used, um it's thought of as seminal. Um and one of my doctoral students about four or five years ago, and uh, did a comparative study working with um, families of sim- similar demographics. But they, and I, I think it was a reasonable study, but it was not really where my heart is. Um, and I wanted to work with families who were struggling. And um, Kathy Dorsey Gaines, who is an African-American scholar, absolutely amazing woman, um, uh, I was teaching at Kane College after I finished my doctorate. She said, I want you to come and meet some families. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up in New York working with families who the first one was living in an abandoned building. And so um, that study, uh, Growing Up Literate, took about six years. But once again, it was working with families where there was a child who was successfully learning to read against all odds uh-huh. in that the families themselves were struggling and and um so, so what had been the outcome of the f- what was the findings in the first study when it was my white middle class families that you were mainly focused on what were the well the thing findings? the the thing that became very clear is that literacy in families is very different than literacy in schools mm-hmm. and so so kids are having experiences at home that where literacy is embedded in everyday life it isn't something that is pulled out and then then dissected mm-hmm. into uh, smaller parts and smaller parts and so in school at that point kids were just given mimeograph uh, uh, sheets it was before even xerox yeah. and so they're filling in um skill sheets that are dealing 
with atomistic pieces of language. And the assumption is, and it's reviving, much to the chagrin of um, many uh, researchers I know, is the idea that if you can teach them all these parts, they'll put them together. But that's not how we learn. Hmm. We learn in context and um, and um, in meaningful situations that have significance for us because we need to pay attention. And so the kinds of literacies that were occurring in families were very different than the kinds of literacies that were going on um, in schools. So that was really probably the most um, uh, striking finding of of that study. The thing that... um, it took off. It was quite, it was quite an extraordinary. My dissertation took off, and I was um, at at one. Um, set, I was at a conference, still really a student or working, you know, feeling like a student, and so, and someone on the panel started to talk about. She started talking about my research, and. Um, Someone said she's she's here, <laughs> and uh, Ken Goodman, who um, is a renowned world scholar, was in front of me, and he turned around and he said, "Stand up, stand up." And Kathy was Kathy Dorsey Gaines was with me. It was uh, growing up literate. Was uh, we were working on it, and I just remember her saying that she watched my color <laughs> rise as I had to stand up and. Uh, talk a little bit about about this work. The thing that so so it the concept would have come out whether I if it was my dissertation or someone else's. It was a time, you know, this more idea of morphic resonance where people are working on the same kinds of ideas at the same time, and it just took off and um, it was picked up by UNESCO. Mm-hmm. And there are now family literacy programs in, I've counted so far, far 140 UN member states. Am I, am I right in thinking that it's, I suppose, expanded now? It's not just academia or literacy as such. Some of the family literacy classes now will have workshops on uh, parental strategies, uh, personal growth, personal health, nutrition. Right. And then in the analysis of those family literacy programs, there are family literacy programs that focus on, especially with women, mothers and children uh, in uh, living in uh, regions where um, women have less opportunity to go to school and girls have less opportunity. So they're, they're focusing very much on literacy skills and helping them become literate. Mm-hmm. And people make the assumption that's what what happens in family literacy. But family literacy programs are also focused on supporting children who've experienced trauma, who live in war zones, working with soldiers who are coming back from, uh, from uh, some form of armed conflict, um, working on local needs. Uh, so there are many uh, family literacy programs um, it seems, I mean, I have not been to Iraq or Afghanistan, but my research, uh, which is mostly web-based, uh, shows that, that indicates that there are many programs that are focusing on um, the kinds of issues that families are facing in the aftermath of war. Um, 
And so, so I think there is a missed opportunity um, of using family literacy as a way of um, increasing um, peace building or or creating opportunities in countries for peace building um, in ways that um, are not going to be they're not part of the dominant ways of thinking about peace building because it's coming from the community mm. and I think that's that is something that um, is really um, problematic. Right. I've been spending a lot of time at the UN, and um, they're so, so stuck in silos. And that's not my word; it's their word. Mm. That countries are in silos, and the, the communication, the idea of multilateralism, um, has really fallen apart. And yet, and this to me is really exciting. So. Nobody crosses the U- the U.S. at the U.N. and I've been in meetings where it's very clear that if someone from the U.S. speaks, nobody would counter. I'm not sure we should. We, you're welcome. I I don't mind if you put this out there. Um, so so um, there's the U.S., there's Russia, and there's China. No one crosses those three. The middle country. Someone was actually saying this at the U.N., so I'm not making it up. Um, is that for any of the mid-sized countries to challenge the big three um, is unlikely. Right. And yet, in Russia, in the US, and in China, there are family literacy programs because family is the one, it's the primary unit of all human societies. Mm. And so they all share, we all share the fact that we support families in some way or other, not always. Clearly, I'm aware of human rights violations. But, but in, the, in the big three who are um, at odds in silos, there are these programs that unite them that aren't recognised. And uh, so, so the idea of peace building and responding to... In the aftermath of um, of uh, some armed conflict, war, uh, I think that family literacy has a role to play. For me, it's totally frust- what's very frustrating is uh, to see um, that this work is not part of the dominant narrative. Is that the UN isn't saying we can work with with, with families in or all of the countries are not saying we can work on these issues by supporting families. We can deal with climate change by, you know, working with families in their local um, situ- in their local context on problems that are really um, central to their lives. And unless it's central to the moment, nobody's going to do it. Right. Why? Why? Why is that? Um, if it is such a like uniting force given that people can it's also something that people can agree on um as an underlying of underlying importance the family side of it why is it that they uh... well i could give a pro- provocative answer we're all about I think, provocations on this I, I think that um the dominant narratives um are so set how many people speak how many minutes they have to speak um that 
at the UN, every it seems to me that so much is ritualized. And is it somewhat scripted? Like, is it all pretty much predetermined? And it's gendered. And like, we have to say this. It is yeah. absolutely gendered. By the, and a big part. And, and this part. is a very, I think, it's much more of um, a female way of looking at, at problems than it is a male way of looking at problems. I mean, I've, the thing that I'm working on right right at this minute is this whole idea of, um, which is astounding to me, that we are preparing for astro- asteroids to hit Earth. Mm-hmm. So we're actually having um, drills. And there, apparently there have been, I think it's four drills so far, huge drills uh, in uh, Colorado for what's going to happen when a, a, an asteroid hits Earth. And it's the stuff of movies, right? We can get our heads around that. It is an outside body that is coming at us. We're going to repel it. But it's not going to happen. They're all convinced it's not going to happen for 100 years. So we're preparing because, well, we're preparing for something that might happen in 100 years' time when we know that a million species are either... Many of them are already extinct. But within the next decade, two decades, three decades, a million creatures on Earth are going to be extinct. And we're not doing anything about it. It's movies. It's the stuff of movies, isn't it? it we, don't, we, don't, we didn't cause this asteroid. If there were, you know, there were millions of asteroids, just as there are millions of animals going to be extinct. So, so, um, so it is an outside force, and we can, men... Excuse me uh, for being for gendering this, but it is a, it is a perfect thing for um, governments to focus on and for the military to focus on because you've got to knock this thing out of the sky or do whatever you do. Yes, yes, it's a very much that way. But if you say that, um, and of course, plastic is so big right now mm. um, that one of the problems. Um, that we're facing is that the, the amount of plastic in the last 30 years, it's mind-blowing, the, um, the amount of plastic we produced. And if we said, OK, if we want to push down the risks for many uh, species, including our own, then we cannot use plastic unless it's for heart valves or something that is life-sustaining. Mm. But we can no longer put our, our um, groceries um, or our, you know, small food things. And we can't... Use, and, of course, they are being banned, but not at a rate where it's going to make any, any difference. So, so it shifts from being this outside force that is coming at us to something that we ourselves are doing. So we, we will get ready for that in 100 years' time, but we're not prepared or we don't seem to have the capability to... And I, and I um, people often say to me that there are seven major companies that are causing the, it's fine. Uh, the, um, the problem. Well, we're all using the... If we all said we won't use plastic. Yeah, we're complicit in that. We're all complicit. Oh, we're absolutely complicit. But I think it's, it's more about human comprehension of problems. The, the idea of one single asteroid coming at us yes. very fast and yes. its immediate effect, I get that. I can, um, and I can we see that. what that is going to do to the world. But when I am thirsty and I don't have a refillable water bottle on me and I walk past a shop that's selling them for a dollar, right. 
And I go, well, it's just one bottle. Right. And I'm thirsty. Right. And everyone else is doing it. That one bottle isn't going to destroy the world. It's just about the way that... It's also that that we are facing so many different existential risks. So we're we're dealing with um, clearly AI um, and the the lack of regulation or any kind of conceptualization of what artificial intelligence is actually... Uh, up to. Part of it is that there are so many different uh, threats to human societies that, um, they, that none of us can um, can uh, get our heads around uh, how to respond. I, I've, I mean, I've made massive changes in my own life, which probably are totally insignificant in the grand scheme, scheme of things. But if we all made a few a few changes, that would uh, I don't think we can blame seven con- uh, companies. Um, I, I do blame governments. I think, I think we have a very serious problem with um, greed. Uh, one of the biggest difficulties is the gap between, the greater the gap in society before, between rich and poor, mm. the vo- more vulnerable the society um, to extreme groups. Um, and uh, eventually to collapse. So um, salaries are stagnant. Um, the college debt has the way in which that's computed has changed in the last 15, 20 years. There's a whole generation that is still relying on their parents when they should be completely mm-hmm able to um, sustain themselves. So so people are just absolutely overwhelmed. I mean, we have created a, a society and actually globally uh, that is not sustainable. Mm. And we don't have any leaders who are willing to, to take that on because, you know, it's a four-year cycle and money is everything. If if the status quo serves you individually well, why would you change it? Right. And if you're surviving, you know. But there are 65,000 people living on the streets in New York. Yeah. And many of them are children. 65,000? Yes. We have, a, we have a huge homeless problem here. Well, I knew that. And uh, uh, so... <laughs> It can be overwhelming. Yeah. But but the thing is, the thing that's important here is not to f- frighten everybody, but everyone can do a little. Mm-hmm. We can all do a little. We can't, we're not going to change things uh, as individuals. Um, but we can do, um, I mean, I've sold my house. I've got rid of my car. Um, I've done all kinds of things to, uh, my footprint is extraordinarily small. And um, I probably am, have taken more extreme steps than most people uh, would consider. But there is a lot we can do to to try to um, make sure that you know we are doing our, doing our bit. The most important part of this, I think, I'm rambling a bit. You'll have to excuse me. But the most important part of this is is of thinking uh, um, of I call them the next generation, the kids now. Um, and and actually, their parents, your age. I mean, we we really need to um, be much more uh, focused on what we what we can do um, to uh, support the next generation. 
we're out of the Holocene, we're into the Anthropocene, the weather is becoming far more, um, I think the word is, I think, complicated. So extreme weather events are going to occur. There will be more fires, there will be more floods. There is no doubt that the um, coastline is changing and it could accelerate the possibilities of um, some especially if Trump doesn't get out of the White House, the, the possibilities of some kind of um, armed conflict, uh, especially in the Middle East, is growing, I think, um, very fast. Uh, and all of this is coming up families. So at the same time all this is coming up families, we're saying, don't use plastic, you know, and who can focus on plastic when you turn on the news and you're just bombarded by stuff mm. it's not an easy it is a very in many ways it's an extraordinary time and a time of great opportunities and it's a time of great dangers mm. you know so it's always interesting how these also like a lot of things that i think people had embraced for so long like you mentioned like technology and um I mean, we were in new york and we've just had the the strike last weekend on the uber drivers um, you know, these platforms that came along and like the water bottle, you know, we've adopted because they're so easy. Well, yeah, great. I can go on my phone and call the, uh, you know, call a cab and, um, you know, it's in, you know, we think, oh, and anyone can get in it. It seems like this story of like creating wealth, but actually it's, of course, just perpetuating the, the, the wealth gap. Um, and actually almost like in, these things that are supposed to make our lives better are actually imprisoning others. I um, only use yellow cabs. And every time I get in the yellow cab, I get this story. And it's extraordinary. Hmm. There are many uh, yellow cab drivers who've committed suicide. Many are bankrupt, and uh, they are they are suffering because of. It, and that is not the only problem. I mean, the other problem is that there are 150,000 more cars running around the city through Uber and other. Um, there are several other apps, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, the amount of uh, particulates, that's the word, uh, the air quality in New York mm-hmm. um, is suffering. Asthma is on the increase. And we should be minimizing um, automobiles in the center, putting money into the infrastructure of the, of the subways and the buses and trying to get to a point where we are um, encouraging um, people to take public transportation so that um, their children are going to be able to breathe in, in now, five years, ten years time mm. and there is no leadership that uh, is heading in that direction mm. and if you talk to the yellow cabs they'll say it's because of uh, of uh, corruption at the top and they'll talk about how it is that Uber made such a, a large uh, imprint has got such a large imprint in the city, but it's the same in London. It's the same in yeah. Madrid, and um, so those things are complicated. Which you know, should we talk about? Do you want to talk about Split? Yeah, let's t- let's talk a little bit about Split because I think you know it covers a lot of the themes that we're kind of discussing right. now. And obviously, <laughs> sitting here in New York, um, yeah, with 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 he in the in the White House, and and uh, yeah, I think it'd be great to um, yeah, if you could. Do, what what made you maybe? Well, first of all, what is split? I didn't read it. Split, split second solution. It's called right. It's um, 
like, as another novel. Split Second Solution is um, uh, a novel that uh, I actually started the novel um, probably very much like with, with Rosie. Rosie started with stories in the 80s. Um, this story started probably at the um, beginning uh, of this century. And so I was working at it for a long time before it actually reached a point of becoming um, a novel. I was fascinated by the way, the fact that you, well, I found unique potentially, or I use that word, but what diff- interesting and different about it. The, this book was the, when you introduce characters, not only you're using words and names that people might have predisposed to certain expectations, but then you don't clarify certain things around what they look like, their age, their genders, anything like that, which you'd normally get in the book to ground you and it's actually on the reader to then determine that through their experiences of these characters which at first is i think challenging as a reader but it also makes it it's one of the great things that makes one of the reviews said that they'd never read a book like it and uh, weren't quite sure how to um how to review it and gave it four stars which i thought was was it was probably my favorite review because the whole idea is to take people out of their experience and and it brings us back to this idea of we can't comprehend what is going to happen in the next uh, decade, two decades, mm-hmm. three decades. Mm-hmm. And it begins with um, a young woman um, who's been um, attacked um, and uh, she's in the Hudson River and it's her last minute, um, actually her last second, um, of life and death splits the second so so the entire book <laughs> takes place in a split second and, and death as well also I think is um, uh, I don't think you supposed to say this but it, it isn't a masculine character which I think no. is often associated with death and you... I tried to shatter as many stereotypes as I could I mean I didn't sit there thinking of stereotypes mm-hmm. I had just thought of the characters and um, and uh, so death is is female, and I think that my understanding of the characters came through writing rather than I, it wasn't a priori. Um, so uh, death, um, she's very female, and she cannot stand people dying, which mm-hmm. uh, is very different than the wraith. You know, if we were talking about Lord of the Rings and these. <gasps> terrible characters or creatures that um, symbolize death and uh, so um, but the the young woman is in the water um, because of an attempted rape and so I kind of I wrote it before the me too started but the me too the idea of me too is central um, to to the piece and I think there's a lot of things you kind of foreshadow I mean not only um I think there's Me Too. There's also, I think, you know, all the... I think we've been talking about technology, not right. as a... Uh, I think it's a human story, but it, there is technology as... It's like, like Black Mirror or... Um, and AI an is AI. hacking minds. Exactly. Um, and uh, I... I the, the, there are a number of things in the book. One of them is the redaction of knowledge. Mm. And I think is one of the most dangerous elements of this time is that uh, Pompeo's just been working on the Arctic uh, some kind of treaty and has taken climate change won't let them use uh, climate change has been taken out of 
um, some documents. But in this country, scientists who are, have, are being harassed, threatened, um, and uh, their work is being expunged from official websites. And so we are at a time where uh, knowledge is is um, in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And the, the book is about that because most of the books books have been, have gone yeah. and one of the things that is so important about word um the main character is called word is that she is covered in tattoos uh, of um important works that she has uh, chosen to actually have tattooed all over her body as a way of preserving uh, knowledge and so so the whole redaction we should be really frightened about this because um, our thinking as we go forward is going to be profoundly impacted by the knowledge that has been taken away from us. Mm-hmm. So knowledge is being taken away. Um, and we're, talk- we're not talking about just a couple of research papers we're talking about whole libraries of research on specific areas that, um, especially the Trump organization, don't want us to have. So if you are anti-climate because of um, the impact on your commercial um, investments, on that it will have some kind of impact on, on your um, portfolio or your business, mm-hmm. then the best thing to do is to get to get rid of it. And that's exactly what, what Trump is doing. And of course, Trump, mm-hmm. it, you can decide whether you include this or not in your in your podcast. Trump is actually in the book. Because mm-hmm. he, he is the ginger Tom. He, it, it didn't start off with me putting him there. The ginger Tom, uh, because I, I was writing before he became president. Had, had he said he was running at the time? I think he was running. Yeah. But, I, you know, I wasn't actually... You didn't have him in your mind when you were... Well, I, unless it was subconscious. Mm. But before the book was written, it was very clear to me that, that he was symbolic of... The ginger Tom was symbolic of... And, th- and there was this... This one moment again, David calls me because when Trump was running, uh, there is a scene in the book at Columbus Circle yes. where the ginger Tom arrives in a helicopter with his um, entourage, entourage yeah. all of whom are menacing, yeah. and everyone is is very happy to see him and uh, adoring very much as Trump's uh, crowds are, and a baby cries. And so he gets one of his uh, entourage to take the um, baby away. And so that whole scene where around the baby and David phoned about, this was months after that scene was written. He said, you've got to watch this video, (laughs) watch the news, uh, Trump and the baby. And there's this scene where this mother has a baby at one of his... And the baby starts crying and he, he says, oh, I love the baby and all that stuff. And then he tells them to get wow. And the baby, the mother and the baby have to, have to leave. I mean, it's really freaky when those, thing, those things happen. So, um, so, you know, I think that solidified uh, the ginger Tom as, 
uh, again, coincidence. Yeah, I mean, I certainly had it in mind reading it, but I, I kind of made that. I think I read in one of the reviews as a that connection point. But certainly, when you read it, it's hard not and, and in to the far end, away from it. Right, and in the end, he's he just he. I mean, there, there is a, a complete um, political um, disintegration in the book, hmm. um, and he. His his the ginger tom um, I I think um, just and I think this of I actually um, am empathetic with uh, with him although I completely disagree with what he's doing. You're empathetic with him? Yeah, I mean I just the man is in he just seems to me to be so um, he's so um, in in such discord with himself. And is clearly um, suffering, mm. and that is not. Um, I I have a hundred percent abhorrence of anyone suffering, even if mm. they are doing things that he's doing, and mm. it worries me that uh, he will eventually just um, be unable to unable to cope with. Um, the chaos that he's creating, and he clearly mm. Is, mm. is challenged. I mean, he has um, an oppositional personality disorder that is um, so um, classic textbook. That um, so, I'm, I don't know how one deals with that. Mm. I mean, I, I, it's it's a mess. Mm. It's an absolute mess. It, it does feel like the book. I mean, you, you kind of say it in the opening kind of section of it that this is um you talk about both the challenge and the opportunity facing the young people today right. and you talked about it in this conversation as as you know as we start to I'm conscious of you know the time the time we have with you today Anna, what, if you were to leave what, what are the messages that you have for you know young people today and what are the i don't know what are the what are your thoughts that you would like to share to anyone kind of listening i think that um I think the level of disillusionment is um, is legitimate, and I think it's a very it's a very difficult moment in human history, uh, and I don't think that uh, we, as civil society, especially young people, can wait for politicians in uh, Washington or uh, London. Moscow, um, the Kremlin. Uh, we, I think, there has to be a, a, a global social movement to um, help. Well, the words "help" wrong. To um, reset where we're going. I mean, we're going. We're on a path that will lead to. Um, I think by the end of the century, to uh, many. Uh, societies completely disintegrating and we have done that mm. my generation mm. we have done that and i think that young people i'm i'm so impressed by what young people are doing it's extraordinary to me that they are stepping up to the plate and they have to get their parents to step up to the plate mm. we have we have to my generation and my children's generation um, the those in their late forties and in their fifties, we've got to get our acts together. Hmm. You know, one of so so as a message, 
I just more power to the young people. You've mentioned your website. If there's anywhere, if there any other, are there any other resources that people can, should, if they're interested in any of the topics we discussed, want to follow up on or follow you? With it? Don't you have a Twitter following or anything like that? That I'm I'm on Twitter some to some extent. I I haven't been up there very often uh, recently, um, but uh, certainly my website is um, very active, and everyone is welcome to use anything that's up there. There's also videos uh, uh, there, um, and then of course Garn Press, which we haven't talked about. The we the press I founded in uh, 2013, co-founded with Ben, uh, my son. Um, there are. That is an extraordinary resource, and I all, all credit to Ben that um, he creates curates the news, um, and we um, have specific areas that we focus on. We support scientists and teachers. Many of our books are written by by public school teachers as well as re, um, university academics. Uh, the press has three um, divisions: people in the planet people in social policy and imagination and the human spirit. But there are new articles up there on an almost daily basis. Um, I always love doing these podcasts because of the people you meet and the, the broad topics that are covered. But I think today has been a shining example of the, the sort of conversations that you don't always get to have, but have been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for sharing your time and your knowledge with us. Well, you're welcome, and I hope I said a few things that made some sense. <laughs> and it's been a pleasure to meet you. It's just lovely. I just, you know, please come back and, and have tea. <laughs> that sounds great. Well. <laughs> well, we hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, then please subscribe and leave us a review, as long as it's positive. The more people review the show, the more people will get to hear the show. Yeah, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, then please do. The email is podcast at newyorkwelsh.com. Or you can contact us through any of the socials. Both our Instagram and Twitter are at New York Welsh. And if you'd like to stay up to date with the latest goings on, you can do so by subscribing to the monthly newsletter on our website. NewYorkWelsh.com. <laughs> <laughs>